remember when I first had my daughter, who's now six, you know, you you post baby pictures, right? And you're on the weekends and you're spending time with your new baby and your family. And I remember this investor pulled me aside and said, you know, Leah, you're posting a lot of pictures on Instagram of your family and it looks like you're not working hard enough. Hi, everyone. Welcome to No Limits. I'm your host, Rebecca Jarvis. If you are a frequent listener here, thank you. We appreciate your loyalty. And if you're new, welcome. Each week, we work here to demystify success. I know it's a weird word, doesn't mean everything to everyone, but the idea is happiness in the work that you do in your life. And we go about finding that by speaking to the world's most influential women across all different industries. And the conversations go beyond the resume. From decision-making to trade-offs to those pivotal moments that shape your careers and your lives. So whether you're looking for advice or you just want to hear a good story, you've come to the right place. All right, No Limits, we have a wonderful guest here with us today. She is the general partner of Fuel Capital, where she invests in early stage consumer SaaS. Is that how you SaaS? SaaS. Software as a service yep. and marketplace companies. She's also the founder of TaskRabbit. She served for as CEO there for eight years, scaled the company to 44 cities, raised more than $50 million in venture capital. And in 2016, she transitioned into the role of executive chairwoman. In 2017, TaskRabbit was acquired by IKEA. IKEA, yay. Um, and, and Leah Busky Sullivan, welcome to No Limits. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. You also started your career, by the way, as a software engineer at a small startup that was bought by IBM. You ended up as a software engineer for IBM. So I think a lot of people can appreciate that idea of either starting somewhere small or starting somewhere large and working for someone else for a time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but one of the reasons I wanted to bring you here is because of burnout. And we were having a conversation now a couple months ago mm-hmm. as I was coming back from maternity leave. And you told me what I thought was shocking information from you about burnout and how hard it was on you. Yeah. I mean, I think it's something that um, people don't usually talk about. And I think it's pervasive across across a lot of industries. But particularly, you know, the startup industry is what I know. And it's what I've lived. And I think particularly as a founder trying to scale and run a startup, uh, you're pushed to your limits. And, you know, investors, my experience were investors, you know, added to that pressure. They were, I had some investors that were very supportive and, um, you know, were real partners in building the company. But honestly, there were some investors that really, you know, um, I felt like were detrimental to the, to the culture that I was building and the pressure that I was put under, I don't think was healthy or sustainable. And so that really has influenced me now as I'm an investor full-time on how I want to work with founders and companies. Take us inside that, because for people who haven't gone out and done fundraising, who don't have investors that they're answering to, explain that relationship and also why that dynamic would be um, so nerve-wracking and and why you would feel the absolute necessity to live up to and go beyond expectation. Yeah, I mean, it is sort of an odd relationship. People used to describe it to me as I was a first-time founder just getting started. 
um, my first time raising money, going out and talking to investors, they'd explain it to me as a marriage. You know, you're picking out your investing partner and you're going to be with this person for the next seven to 10 years and you're going to be in the trenches with them. And there's going to be highs and lows. You know, for me, I felt um, obligation isn't even the right word because it was so much more than that. When I took money from my investors, I raised, you know, over $50 million in venture overall. When I took that first million, that first five million, that first 10 million, um, the amount of pressure and obligation I felt to not only produce a good return for my investors, which is why they were investing in me, right? Because they have investors that they're trying to produce a return for as well. Um, But just being able to live up to the expectation, I think from a mental standpoint, it was like, great, they're putting this money into me and they believe in the business I want to build and they believe that there'll be a return. But they also are believing in me and they're entrusting me and they're buying into this vision that I am selling to them. And I have to live up to it. Um, And so I think the pressure was was really mental as well. How much of your vision did you believe? Uh, a thousand percent of it. I mean, I, I that was never the issue. Everything I felt like I was pitching and selling and the story I was telling, I, you know, a thousand percent believed in. But it was about the execution and it was about making that vision reality. Mm-hmm. And it's like saying I'm going to create the perfect dress. You might be able to say you have the vision for the perfect dress, but actually creating the perfect dress and doing it over and over and over and over again, very difficult to do. Very difficult to do. And every person is different, and every person might have a different version of what their perfect dress is, right? Mm -hmm. And so as much as you try to articulate your vision to your investors, you know, what's in your head may not always be the same thing that they see or that's in their head. And so making sure that visions are aligned was also super important. Well, I know just from talking to you and other friends who have created companies, it's also really tough when the investor has a vision, for example, faster growth than what you think is actually achievable. And as a result, a lot of businesses have actually gone out of business because they pushed too hard. They tried to be in too many places. Um, Sophia Amoroso from Nasty Gal will talk about that as part of her story. She's been here on No Limits as well. So, okay, so you're feeling this immense amount of pressure. You want to perform. You want to deliver. You believe in what you're doing. What was the burnout for you? What was the tipping point? Yeah, so for me, I mean, I remember one specific instance, and there were highs and lows throughout the almost decade that I ran the company. But um, there's one particular instance where I was raising the last $3 million we needed to get the company to profitability, to continue to grow and thrive, and to be sustainable on our own. You'd think I'd already raised, you know, $47 million. Like the last three, you would think. These are not... Uh, small numbers. No. Yeah. You'd think it would be pretty straightforward. You know, at that point, we'd been operating seven, eight years in. Um, But that last $3 million was the hardest money for me to raise. And because it was so hard to raise, um, and that had to deal with investor dynamics and politics that I didn't fully understand at the time as a founder. I understand better now as as I'm on the investor side. And I kind of understand how I have to manage my LP relationships, my limited partner relationships, and the investors that invest in my fund. But there were all these behind-the-scene dynamics I didn't really understand. 
So the last $3 million was really hard. Um, I think I talked to over 50, 75 investors for this $3 million round size I wanted to pull together. Current investors that invested in the company had supported the company, you know, had been around in the company for now seven plus years and were kind of tapped out. Um, which they I, weren't willing to be a part of that three million. They weren't willing to pull that full three million together. They were willing to be a part of it, but in small ways, not enough to just have it be done. And anyone outside would look at that as, wait a minute, you're inside. You kind of know where the bodies are buried. Why aren't you willing to pony up a, ma- a majority or a bigger portion of all of this? Absolutely. And 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 so I didn't understand that dynamic either. But now I realize after seven years in, their funds were old. Some of them were closed. They didn't have follow-on. They couldn't go back to those old LPs and ask for more money. They were just really dynamics that were so far out of my control. But yes, the perception externally it, that didn't help. That didn't look good um, for the company. And so, you know, after many months of um, talking to investors, we were literally weeks away from being cash out as a company. I mean, I was looking at Stacy and thinking, like, are we going to have to cut half the team? What are we going to do? Stacy is. Stacy is the current CEO of TaskRabbit. At the time, she was my COO. And so we talked to a bunch of investors and I went for a walk one day with a friend who's also a founder and entrepreneur. It was a Monday afternoon. Went for a walk, kind of, you know, told him what was going on, was venting. And I went home. Later, he tells me, I looked a little green on that walk, which makes sense because I went home and my stomach started to hurt. And the pain grew and grew and grew until about 8 o'clock. I'd put my daughter to bed. Um, and she was sleeping, and my stomach was still really hurting, and I decided to just take a lift to the emergency room. And so got to the emergency room, waited for, you know, five-plus hours, finally get in, and by that time, I am, like, barreled over in pain. Long story short, it ends up being stress-induced colitis. And so this infection had uh, had formed in my stomach, Due to stress, my colon almost burst, which would have caused sepsis. And I, I mean, I don't want to be dramatic, but the surgeon was like, you could have died or it would have been really, really, you know, bad. Um, but I spent five days in the hospital just getting pumped full of antibiotics. And um, the, the surgeon was like, this is caused by stress. Like, what is going on in your life that is so stressful right now that that you know, you literally made your body sick to the breaking point. Um, And at the time, you know, I was closing, I was getting this round done. I had found an investor at this point in London in the UK that was a super fan of TaskRabbit um, and really believed in the vision and mission and wanted to help and, and be a part of the round. But I'm on the phone to London from my hospital bed getting this $3 million locked wow. in the bank. Yes. So, had it hit you then, I mean, obviously, you, you you laid it out here that the surgeon told you, essentially, you could have died. But knowing that, you're still making the calls to London. I, li- I remember being not fully admitted to the hospital yet in the emergency room. And my thought was, my company is going to fail because my body's given out on me. And that's all I could think about at the time. 
Well, what do you think now, looking back on all of it? You know, I look back now with this 2020 hindsight, and I just realized how much pressure and how much stress I was under. And I realized that the buildup over the course of that eight years, um, you know, from investors, from employees, from all different sides, just really weared on my body. Mm-hmm. I'll give you another example of a, of a, a dynamic I had with, uh, you know, investors that I think just contributed to this this feeling of burnout and of stress. I remember when I first had my daughter, who's now six, you post baby pictures, right? And you're on the weekends and you're spending time with your new baby and your family. And I remember this investor pulled me aside and said, you know, Leah, you're posting a lot of pictures on Instagram of your family and it looks like you're not working hard enough. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a human being. Right. And I'm a mother Mm -hmm. and I'm running this successful company and like who cares about the perception and who cares, you know, someone thinks I'm not working hard enough. The company is doing great. But it was that sort of mentality that is so unhealthy and is pervasive, particularly in Silicon Valley, Mm -hmm. that is really pushing founders to the edge. So I hear all of this and It's a reality that I'm sure people out there are dealing with on their own as well. If you were to go backwards in time and do anything differently, what things would you have done that would have protected both interests, the interests of your company, your baby, obviously your daughter is your baby as well, and yourself, your physical self? You know, I think looking back and I think being an investor now, what I really counsel and advise my founders to do is to be very cognizant of themselves and their needs. Because if they are not taking care of themselves first, then it's not a sustainable way to operate a company, operate a business, operate your life. And really, it can be dangerous. It was dangerous for me. So, um, you know, at Fuel, at Fuel Capital, the fund that I run now with my partner, Chris Howard, we're really focused on not only investing the dollars into a company, but really investing in the person, in the human being, in the founder, and encouraging them to take the time to exercise, to meditate, to just take some space for themselves to think. Mm-hmm. And it's, as a founder, that's not something that is going to come easily to you, and it's going to be something I think that is so easy just to cut out because there's a million other things that you want to focus on. You feel the pressure to focus on. You feel the need to focus on. But I think if you look at the long-term game that you're playing, and as I look back at the long-term game I was playing, I realize that I could have run things in a much more sustainable way if I had just carved out the time to keep myself sane and healthy first. One of the things I often wrestle with is – If I go back in my career to the early stages of it, I was constantly operating to the point of burnout. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was kind of like burnt out, but just continuously going and going and going and working without sleep and working through meals. Um, And I don't know, to be 100% honest, I don't know that I would be sitting here today Mm -hmm. if I hadn't made the choices back then. Right. And so I wrestle with when we have these conversations about burnout and Ariana Huffington has been here and talked about sleep. I always think to myself, yes, I I 100 percent agree that you have to take care of yourself. 
But I do also think that there is some trade-off and maybe some tipping point someplace along the way in mm-hmm. your career where you have to prioritize that self more. Yeah. And if you start doing it too early, to be completely honest, you're going to anger a lot of people and you're not going to be, in my opinion, and people can disagree with me, mm-hmm. but in my opinion, you're not going to be taken as seriously by people who are thinking, where do I give opportunity? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point. I mean, the the challenge, right, is that there's a system in place that people have to work within. And there's different expectations at different levels in that system. And so I think a couple of things. I think, one, it's about, you know, working smart and mm-hmm. working super efficiently. And I think you may agree with me that as moms and as parents – I found that I was able to do that much better yeah. with children. It clarifies what's m- most important and Absolutely. what can wait. Absolutely. And if I had had that clarity when I didn't have children, I actually think that I would have worked smarter and would have made impact faster in different ways. And so I think trying you know, to be really cognizant of that from your early on in your career is super important. Yep. And I'm not saying you know, don't work hard. I am actually saying be intense, but be intense on the right things. And not everything. Yeah. I think the second thing I realize, and, you know, I would give this advice to to young people, you know, just starting their careers, is that I believe that you can have it all, but I believe you can't have it all at the same time. And I think that there are times in your career, in your life, where you will have to go to the limit and push yourself. But it shouldn't be like that forever. And there should be seasons, you know, in your career and in Mm -hmm. your life where you can push yourself, where you can work smart, where you can work efficiently, where you can juggle and balance family, too. But there are going to be different times in your career and your life. And you have to be, you know, smart and aware about when to make those choices and trade-offs. Yep. I, I always try and have some sort of light at the end of the tunnel but I also can imagine that when you have less, you, you you have your objective, right? Like the $3 million, you knew you needed to raise the $3 million. Right. And there was definitely a deadline because the company would go out of business right. without meeting that deadline. Um, so you kind of like in your mind, it, it's one thing, but in your mind, you push yourself to the $3 million and then you take a little vacation afterwards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But of course, in the reality, once you get that funding, the last thing you can do is take a vacation because right. now you have all this money and you have to protect it and make exactly. it work for you. Yeah. So now as an investor with Fuel Capital, how do you decide, how do you convey to your founders? You talked about meditation. You talked about time for yourself. Do you think of time as having sort of ideal inputs like 40 or 50 hours a week for this, 30 hours a week for this? So I I don't. I think that it can even be small chunks of time that maybe are even small and spread throughout the day. And I think every person is different, right? I think you have to be aware. You I think people can feel when they're they're hitting burnout, when they're hitting their limits, when they're hitting an unhealthy place that's not sustainable. And I think, you know, getting to yourself before that happens. And if it could be just three minutes, three minutes, shut your door, close your eyes, clear your mind for three minutes like that can make a huge difference. So I think it is about little chunks and, and knowing when when you need that. And it's just so easy to skip mm-hmm. and just push through. And that's. That's when I think the problems occur. The other thing I'll say is 
I don't think this is just about, you know, the person, you know, that's pushing through or just about the founder or entrepreneur. It really is about creating a culture for a company. And I think we've seen a lot of, um, you know, stories recently over the last five years or so of cultures that aren't great in these massive companies. But from the very beginning, there's been so much pressure to perform and there's been so much pervasive burnout throughout that it really, I think, uh, affects the culture in a detrimental way that doesn't, you know, uh, create a, a sustainable business overall as well. I think there's also an argument to be made that that downtime, however you're spending it, is also conducive to better outcomes, not just physical outcomes for yourself. But having that time away and that separation allows creativity and thinking that is not just like if you're just going through your daily routine, your thinking is never going to be outside the boundaries, or at least in my experience, my thinking is not outside the boundaries of the structures that are already created. But when I take a step back, I see things. And I do, I agree with that point from a, especially from a leadership standpoint, you hear from so many notable leaders like Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg or you that taking that step away allows you to see the bigger picture and have ideas that you wouldn't have with the head down doing the work every day. That's right. And it's it's about having the space for that creativity and those ideas. But it could even just be stepping away from the desk and seeing a problem in a different way, a problem that, you know, you need to solve. But you're not going to solve it if you're in front of your screen doing your email, you know, for the next eight hours. It's like you've got to give your mind a place to breathe. Let's talk about refuel and the work that you're doing with refuel. Yeah. So at Fuel Capital, uh, we launched this series of events called Refuel And it's all focused around founder health and wellness. Um, Entrepreneurs were engaging from actually all over the country. Uh, We even did a refuel event up in Toronto around the Collision Conference. And so we're bringing people together in, you know, what we think is more uh, a healthier way to network. So instead of the, you know, startup drinks or dinners, we're trying to do a healthy sort of fitness emphasized, you know, juice bar networking activity <laughs> to just kind of like change change the networking game and do something healthy and really try to emphasize more about the sustainability um, that we want to create and that we want to see for people. For people in these communities. Yeah. And it's also, I think what's interesting about it is is that I've gone to plenty of networking events with alcohol and it's not an issue. Yeah. But when you hear about some of the situations that have come up in Me Too, and again, I'm not saying that you can't go out and get drinks and that things stay yep. totally civil, but I think that it does in some ways solve for some of those potential issues. Well, I got to say, you know, since we launched these refuel events, the just the the percentage of women that attend um, is so much higher than if we were going to hold, you know, a happy hour at mm-hmm. a bar. It feels more inclusive. The barrier to entry, I think, is lower for a lot of women. So I think that's also another great thing just to engage more women in the founder and entrepreneurial community by doing something that's a little bit different. Hear more from Leah Busky Sullivan after a word from our sponsor. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The Girlfriend is a free weekly e-newsletter from AARP built on the belief that girlfriend power is everything. It offers stories for Gen X women related to sex, health, beauty, travel, and money. Whether it's a shoulder to cry on or help navigating the next phase of your life, visit thegirlfriend.com to subscribe. You can also join the Girlfriend Book Club, a closed Facebook group that hosts live author interviews and free book giveaways. Again, it's thegirlfriend.com, because everybody needs a girlfriend. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. You started a recycling company when you were in (laughs) elementary school. Was that when you realized, I want to be a founder? It's funny. Pollution Solutions was the name. That's a good name. (laughs) Do they exist now? I don't know. LLC? Absolutely not. (laughs) No. Um, It was funny. I don't know where my entrepreneurial spirit came from. I don't know. My father was in the Air Force for over 30 years. My mother was a stay-at-home mom. But I remember when I was eight years old asking my dad what the highest ranking in a company was. And he told me it was being a CEO, a chief executive officer. And I remember this conversation with him. And that's when I went on to create Pollution Solutions. You said, I would like to be the CEO. Yes. I made my company so I could be CEO. And it was, you know, an excuse to boss around my little sister and my cousin as well. But we set up offices in our basement. I had a business plan. I mean, I don't know where all this came from, but it was in me from an early age. I love that. And when you see entrepreneurs now, because you're in the room with so many of them, what do you think is the biggest error, the biggest mistake that they make when they're pitching you and when they're thinking about their companies? Okay, here's the biggest the biggest thing. And in, in one of my pet peeves when I meet entrepreneurs, I really want to meet entrepreneurs that are purpose built for that particular opportunity. Mm. Startups are hard. You're going to hit walls. And if you aren't passionate and purpose built about what you're doing, then you're not going to be willing to walk through those walls and find ways around them. And so many times I meet entrepreneurs and maybe they're, you know, fresh out of business school and they're like, you know, I've been assessing five different business ideas and I picked this one idea because the market is right and the, you know, timing is right and the business model is right. But are they right? Yeah. Are they right for that opportunity? The stars haven't really aligned. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So what do you do then? I'm sure there are people listening who have ideas, They might not be the perfect ideas for them. Do you just keep looking for another idea if you're desperate to found something? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I had so many ideas before I had the idea for TaskRabbit. I bounced around this idea in the real estate market. Um, I thought about all kinds of different things. I was blogging a lot. I was exploring and researching. And it wasn't until I was out of dog food one night and I thought there's got to be an easy way to get this dog food. 
that I came up with the idea for TaskRabbit. And then I realized that was the perfect idea for me. And why was it perfect for you? Well, at the time, this was 2008. So there were three emerging technologies that were just coming out. Social technology from Facebook, location-based technology, being able to pinpoint where someone is at any given moment, and then mobile technology. The iPhone had just come out four months earlier. And I'm a trained engineer. I'm a technologist. I love technology. And so when I realized I was out of dog food that night, I immediately thought, there's got to be a way to use this iPhone to pinpoint someone at the grocery store and connect with them and have them grab dog food for me. I'm willing to pay them to do it. And that was the moment where I realized I could get really passionate about this idea. I know that I can build it. And it's something that I felt like could help people, you know, all over the world. I love the way you explain that. And I wonder, did you did you start it all or did you think at all about it being about pets as opposed to it being I mean I get that you put a rabbit in your title (laughs) right but was there what did you kind of come with that idea first and then say no that's too small I need to think more broadly I did you know from the very beginning you know the moment of inspiration was the dog food but I saw I had this vision from the beginning Mm. that didn't really change in a decade which was this was a way to connect people around services around skills around labor markets that was very different. When you say labor markets, and that's what initially hit my mind when you said 2008, because if you think back to that time, you have your, well, actually, it's an interesting question. Mm -hmm. Which one is your customer? Is your customer the person who's getting the dog food, or is it the delivery person who's bringing the dog food? Right. So in any marketplace business, customers can shift and change. For TaskRabbit, The customer actually, in my mind, was always the tasker, always the person doing the delivery, making money, earning a living, building their books of business. And we really were there to create a platform that empowered them to make money in a new way of working. And it was definitely a time where a lot of people were either looking for some work or a new job because they had lost theirs in the Great Recession. Yep. How do you now think... 10, 11 years later about these various roles like TaskRabbits, like Uber, that our employees, I mean, we've talked about this before, and it's Mm -hmm. been something that's really important to you. They're employees of these mega companies, but they're not traditional employees. Yeah, exactly. So I think that over the last decade that the labor markets have been shifting and changing, I think they will continue to shift and change. And that's really being driven by people and their expectations around work and their thinking around what work means to them. I mean, it actually can be tied straight back to the burnout question, right? Yeah, I was thinking that actually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my father worked for the government for over 30 years and that generation, you know, tended to stay in their jobs and roles and work at these massive companies. I started at IBM. When I first started at IBM, I thought, this is the place where I'll have my career. That's what I saw my dad do, right? But the future of work is changing, and the consumer is changing, the consumers who are working, right? And so the idea now is there's so much more emphasis around flexibility of work, flexibility in schedule, remote working, being able to really design your day and you know emphasize the skills that you want – which actually, I think, can help you not burn out, right, and not sort of be 
a slave in an industry for decades and decades where that where you might not actually be that passionate about being and doing. What's the worst advice you've received along the way? <laughs> well, one massive surprise actually was that when I first started TaskRabbit, I would ask really smart people for advice all the time. And I would ask them, you know, I have this challenge I'm facing. Maybe it was fundraising. Maybe it was marketing, whatever it was. I'd ask three to five other CEOs that were at the top of their games. And every single one of them would give me a different piece of advice. Yep. And I was so confused. I was like, these are smart people. Why can't they just tell me the answer? Why don't they all converge in the same singular answer? Yeah. (laughs) But they don't. And so what I realized is that it was up to me, right, as the founder and CEO to make those choices, but to gather a lot of inputs. And so, you know, I got all kinds of crazy advice all the time. One (laughs) piece of advice actually was to not change the name to TaskRabbit. So the original name for the company was RunMyErrand.com. And people loved that name who used the service. I always hated it. I felt like it didn't really encompass what I wanted to do. And so there was pressure just to keep that name, RunMyErrand.com. But I said, nope, it's too small. We've got to go bigger. And so thank goodness we changed it to TaskRabbit. Yeah. I also think it's freeing when you realize and you're you're lucky you've worked really hard to be able to call on super smart people who are now a part of your community. But I do think it's freeing when you start to realize that all of these really smart people have different ideas about what you should do mm-hmm. because it tells you that there I don't know if it's accurate to say there isn't one right idea, but that you can come up with the best idea. Like it, there's something about that that I think is very freeing and when you get Absolutely. to the heights of a career like yours, mm-hmm. It's pretty cool to be able to see all those different things. Yeah. And and to build that confidence, I think, in yourself and your own instincts, right, to to make choices and make decisions. Because a lot of time, there's not enough indicators or data out there right. that's going to tell you what's right. Yeah. You're working with partial information. Mm-hmm. That is definitely the role of a founder and a CEO. Yeah. And, and, and you have to make big choices that have impact on all the people who work for you as well. Right. Absolutely. Leah, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, it is the end of the interview, and that means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our No Limits listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's entrepreneur is Jen Barry. She's the founder, director, writer, and producer of Barry Creative. She was nominated by Lisa Overman. Here Jen is to tell you more. Hi, everyone. I'm Jen Barry, founder, director, writer, and producer of Barry Creative. One of my biggest challenges has been being confident in the metrics of success that I've set for the growth of my career and my business. I've intentionally kept Barry Creative small. It's just myself and a production manager, and then we're able to scale up and down with creative partners and collaborators locally and across the country to build the best teams possible for each unique client's needs and projects. And that's been a really great model for my company for the last nine years. Conventional success often says you need square footage and a large payroll, but I really believe that it's the quality of the work, the satisfaction of the clients, and being proud in the work we do that is the best measure of our success. Thanks for sharing with us, Jen. I wish you and Barry Creative continued success. Remember, you can head on over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Jen. And also thank you, Lisa, for the nomination. If you or someone you know should be featured here as a No Limits entrepreneur, you can send me those nominations at no limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. Also send me your career questions 
I love hearing from you. Finally, a shout out to the team who helps make this happen each week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Brittany Martinez, research assistant, Lane Wynn. Thanks to ABC Audio. And we'll see all of you here next week.